0: Okay, last week, we started our Advent season and this series that we're calling Expecting Presence because we're exploring this idea that the best gift God could possibly have given to human beings was himself, his very presence. And we see that in Jesus. Jesus is the presence of God on earth, God who is able to sit down with human beings, look them in the eye, listen to them, ask them questions, put a hand on their shoulder. That's the presence of God. There's power in that. And it's an incredible gift. It's the best gift he could have given us still today. That's why we're looking forward to Jesus coming back so much. The ability to sit down with him, look him in the eye. So if that's true, that the best gift God could give was his presence, then is that also true for us? Is the best gift we can give to the people that we love our presence? Just the time to sit down, look people in the eye, ask them questions, be interested, be curious, give them our undivided attention. Undivided attention is a rare gift these days, isn't it? So we're, we're exploring the possibility that maybe, maybe the, the gifts that we buy for people don't do nearly as good a job of communicating our love and their value as sitting down and being present with human beings. So we'll circle back to that in a little bit towards the end of the message here. But what I want us to uh, start thinking about now is the idea that uh, the way that God shows up and is present among us does something in our hearts. It, I think it inspires greater faith. It inspires greater faith. So we're expecting greater faith because we're expecting God to show up. So what does it look like to expect faith? Well, let's, let's start with this question, which may seem like it doesn't make sense. But how are you at painting? Anybody would just say, I'm just a great, I'm a great painter. I'm I'm excellent. Let's be honest, you know? I mean, that's what we're trying to do. So if you're honestly a good painter, it's okay to raise your hand. Um, I'm not. I'm I'm pretty terrible at it. Uh, I can't even, I don't even draw well. I, I have had some bad moments in Pictionary. Like those are some times when my weakness is on display, because you have it in your head, and you make the, the lines on the page, and you step back, and you go, that's not what was in my head, you know? And other people are going, yeah, I hope not. Like, like there have been some just bad moments with that, because I just can't, I can't draw. And, and I think sometimes the way that we go about our lives is we're, we're, we're trying to paint our own life. We're, we're trying to be the ones who, who take control, and we take the brush, and I'm going to paint my life. I'm going to decide what, what is allowed in my life. I'm going to decide what, what is not. I'm going to decide my direction and my path and my purpose. And it turns out we're actually not very good at that. We're, as human beings, we're not good at, at, at painting the, on the canvas of our own lives. And I think we can see the results of that all around us. I mean, you can see it on a global scale, but you can also see it in your own home and in the mirror. We're just not great at it. So what are the options then? If, if we're not good at it, is there a way for us to live a beautiful life? One that we can step back from the canvas and go, man, that's, that's, that's amazing. That's exactly what I was hoping. I, I want us to take some time and look at a, a period of history in uh, the life of, of the people of God, the Israelites, and see how they sort of lived this out in a way that we get to look back and reflect on and, and think about like, uh, what, what can we learn from the way that the Israelites handled this? So we're going to look at two books today, Ezra and Nehemiah. And these were, I think, originally probably one scroll, so, but they're divided in our uh, Old Testament as two books. But they occur uh, in, at the same time period, and it's a very significant time period in the life of, of the people of God. They had been conquered by the Babylonians and then deported So they're exiled to Babylon. If you were here last week, we talked about Babylon as the the place that sort of represents chaos and rebellion against God. And this is where the Israelites are living, in Babylon. But when we come to the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, Babylon has been conquered now by another empire, the the Medes and Persians, and and they have a very different foreign policy. So their foreign policy says, "Let's, let's send these people back home to their homeland and let them rebuild their homeland. And so uh, this happens in three waves that the Israelites are sent back to populate the land of Israel again. And in the first wave, one of the leaders of the people of Israel, his name is Zerubbabel. That's kind of fun to say, isn't it? Let's let's all say it together. Say Zerubbabel. Yeah, that's nice. So some of you are like, that's my next child. I'm going to name my next child, Zerubbabel. Don't do that to the kid. Um. Zerubbabel was charged by the king of Persia, Cyrus, actually commissioned Zerubbabel to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And this is a significant moment because the Israelites were warned for a couple hundred years, if you don't stop idolatry and repent, then you're going to get conquered and you're going to lose your land. And that's exactly what happened. But the very same prophet said, when that happens, it won't be forever. God will preserve a remnant and he will restore Israel someday as a a place of beauty and his presence. So the the Israelites who are going back home, some of them, their their belief is now's the time when God is going to restore Israel. And he's going to make us great as a nation. And it's going to be like when David was king, when we had peace from all our enemies and everyone was prosperous. It's going to be like that. God's going to do that for us. So in their minds, a new temple is step one. A new temple is step one to the kind of uh, identity as a people that they want on their canvas. We're getting a new temple. The problem is the new temple was nothing like the old temple, Solomon's temple was amazing. Here's some pictures side by side of, uh, those are actual photographs from the 5th century BC. Uh, So Solomon's temple is there on your right. Um, And it was a wonder. I mean, like people came from all over the world at the time to see this building. It was amazing. It took a lot of years and a lot of forced labor to make this happen, but it it was incredible. And then you see Zerubbabel's temple there on the left. Not quite in the same category, is it? I mean, it looks like, you know, me and Chad could go out there and build that probably in a week or so, uh, mostly Chad. Um, but like, it's just not impressive, but all the same, they believe this is the place where God is going to dwell among his people. So they have a dedication service for Zerubbabel's temple and they, they have a week long festival and they dedicate the temple because when this happened for Solomon in first Kings chapter eight, when Solomon dedicates his temple, I mean, it's a nationwide party. Everybody shows up and then God moves into the temple. And when he does, it's filled with smoke. And the smoke is so heavy that the priests have to evacuate the building. They can't even do the thing they were in there to do because the presence of God is so overwhelming. And so when they dedicate Zerubbabel's temple and they have this festival and God doesn't show up. There's no smoke. And this is a major letdown for the people. They just feel like we did the thing. We painted the thing we were supposed to paint. We put the temple on our canvas. Where's the glory of God? The second wave is led by a man named Ezra. Ezra is identified by a different king. This is about 60 years later. A different king, a king named Artaxerxes. Not quite as fun to say as Zerubbabel. It's actually hard to say. Artaxerxes Artaxerxes sends Ezra back. He identifies him as the person who probably knows the most about the Old Testament law, the, the Torah. And he says, Ezra, go back and teach the people, your, your people, the Torah, your, your, your people's scriptures. And so Ezra goes, and he, that's what he does. He, he teaches everybody the Torah, which they had forgotten. And he reminds them of the laws of God. These are the things that make you unique as a people. These are the ways you're supposed to represent who God is to the nations. He reminds them of that. So what they do is they sort of pick out a couple of these laws, and they recognize we're not actually following all the laws. And one in particular was that they had... Jewish men who had married outside of the Jewish community. So Jewish men who had married foreign women. And they're like, well, that's wrong. We got to fix this. We got to stop this. And so their plan then was every Jewish man who's married a foreign woman, he's got he's to get rid of her. And if she had kids, too bad. They got to go. That's the plan. Man, you can imagine the turmoil that this created, this, this pathway that they chose to try to get back on track, and it just destroyed families, and it was so painful and disruptive for the nation. And so Ezra brings the Torah. He does what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to be rebuilding the community. This is something they put on their canvas. You know, just like the temple was, like their, you know, physical identity as a people, the place where God lived, the Torah was the place where God instructed them how to be his people. The temple and the Torah, you put those two together, and we should be right on track to our former glory as a nation. So they put the Torah on the canvas And it just doesn't happen. There's division and disruption. And they step back and they look at this canvas and they're like, this is not, this is not what we had in our heads. The third wave comes with a man named Nehemiah. Same king, Artaxerxes, tells Nehemiah, you you know, you have permission to go back and rebuild the walls around the city because the walls had been destroyed by the Babylonians. Anyone could come and go into the city and they, they wanted walls so they could be secure and have more control over who comes in and out. So Nehemiah does something absolutely incredible. He rallies the people, he inspires them and they rebuild the walls around the city in two months. It's amazing. Faster than me and Chad could have done it for sure. And they, so they rebuild the walls, and then they have this huge dedication service. And they're like, we're, we're gonna have this big party, and we're gonna celebrate that the walls are now built, and we're now secure as a people. Maybe this will be the last piece of the puzzle. We, we got the temple, and we got the Torah, and now we have the walls, so we're safe and secure. Maybe now we'll be restored to our former glory. So they have the big party, and then after the party, Nehemiah starts to step back and look at the canvas, and he's kind of going, how are we doing as a people? And the answer is, not great. Not great. He sees that the temple reforms that were supposed to be lived out by the priests when Zerubbabel built a new temple, gone. No one's paying any attention to him. He looks at some of the teaching that Ezra brought with the Torah. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. No one's doing it. People are just treating the Sabbath like every other day. And He kind of goes, man, we're, we're blowing it here. They step back and they look after, they they put all these things, they had good intentions, they were good things. I mean, the temple's a good thing, right? The Torah's a good thing, right? The wall around the city's a good thing. They put all these good things up on their canvas and they step back and go, this is just not how it's supposed to look. And so even the last prophet that comes along, so there's a period between the Old and New Testament um, of about 400 years, where there's no word from God. There, there are no prophets speaking on, on God's behalf. The last prophet to speak to the people before this, this silent period is Malachi. And here's kind of how God sums it up through Malachi. Malachi 3.7. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. The people are asking like, what? Well, we did all the things. We built the temple. We have the law. We have the law. We have the wall what else are we supposed to do? God says, Re- return to me. Well, what is supposed to break the cycle that they've been in? How are they supposed to get out of it? What could they possibly do? Well, the answer is, it's not something they're supposed to do. It's something God is going to do. So God told them through the prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, exactly what he was going to do. So let's look at a couple of verses. This is Jeremiah 31. Again, if you see something on the screen that's underlined, you can read that out loud with us. This is the covenant. With the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. In their minds and write it on their hearts. And they will be my people. What seems to be the emphasis here? Who's doing the work? God. God is doing the work. God is making the covenant. God is putting his law in their hearts. God is saying, you, you have to let me be the one who's in charge. You've got to surrender control to me. He echoes this through the prophet Ezekiel. This is from Ezekiel 36, 26. Are you ready? Go. I will give you a new And put a new spirit in you. And give you a heart of flesh. God says, I have some work to do in you. As long as you have these hearts that are selfish and bent towards being in control, bent towards being in the ones who have to hold on to the brush of your own life, as long as you're the ones holding on, you're just gonna keep in this cycle of disobedience and paying the consequences of your sins. If you wanna break the cycle, you've gotta let me do some work. You've gotta lay down the brush and let me give you a new heart. And I don't think that message was for the ancient Israelites alone. I think there's some truth here for us. I think we have a tendency to want to hold on to control of our own lives. Even though we're not that great at it, we want to be the ones who decide what's in and out. Because sometimes we think it's better to have control, even if I make some mistakes, than to give up control. And so what do we do? We, we, we paint our own canvas. So this is, this is kind of what we paint. Please be the right one. Yes. Okay. So we, we grab the brush and we, we want to decide what, what kind of financial situation do I want for me and my family? So we, we paint our picture of finances. And, and, and we paint it. We don't want to just get by. No, nobody ever at 17, 18 starts making their college plans and what kind of career they're going into and saying, my goal is to just get by in life. No, you want to find a job where you can make some money and you can have some choices, right? So you can, you can buy a nice car. If you, you may not buy a nice car, but you could if you wanted to, right? You, you could buy a big house. If you, you, may not, you may choose to live in a small house, but you could have a big house if you wanted to. You, you, you could take whatever kind of vacation you want. You, you, just, you may choose not to, but you could. Like that kind of freedom, that's what we want. And so we paint this picture of our finances, what we're going to do with our money. And we, we, we throw it up on the canvas. This is my idea. We do the same with our happiness, our definition of happiness. What is gonna bring me happiness in life? And a lot of this has to do with our our choices of how we spend our time and the kind of people we wanna be around. And so we we paint that too. We paint our calendars. And we're in very tight control of our calendars because it's the most precious possession that we have is our time. And we hold on to it. And we don't give it away needlessly. We don't wanna waste time because there's so much to do and so, one of the things that we're seeing that's common in the Christian world is like the, this type of gathering with other believers, whether it's on a Sunday morning or in somebody's home, this sort of has, this just gets penciled in, right? It gets penciled in because I don't want to waste that time. If something, if there's an opportunity to do something different with that time, I'll do something different with that time. I, I, don't, I don't need to gather with other believers, but it's nice if I don't have anything else to do. And that just gets penciled in because I'm in control. It's my calendar. I'll put, I'll put on there what I want. We do the same thing with the people in our lives. We want to control the people in our lives. And if, if, if somebody's hurt us, they're out. And if they can benefit us, they're in. And if they're like us, they're in. Like if, if you kind of have the same kind of, you know, drive the same kind of cars and live in the same kind of neighborhoods as me, then you're in. But if you're different from me, if you look different and you sound different and you smell funny, then you're out. And we want to control that, what that circle of our people looks like. And this is what we end up with. We step back and we look at it and we go, well, it's not exactly a work of art, is it? <laughs> it's not exactly what we would call a masterpiece. It's pretty simple. It's pretty basic, but it's the best we can do because honestly, we're not that good at this anyway, right? And that's, that's the kind of life that most people live. Even people who call Jesus Lord live a life like this. And you're kind of going, well, what's wrong with that life? If I, get the, if I get the things that I want on the canvas, what's wrong with it? I will tell you in a minute. Let's look first at what God does when he says, I'm going to give you a new heart. And then he kind of goes radio silent for about 400 years. And then this happens. Jesus is born, he comes onto the scene and begins to preach. Here's what he preaches. Mark 1:15. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus is saying, now's the time. All these promises that God made through the prophets, now's the time. We're gonna start fulfilling these things. So here's what you gotta do. Repent and have faith. Repent and faith. And I think these two things represent a cycle that's supposed to be the part of the life of a believer on a daily basis. Repentance and faith work together to open our hearts to God's transforming work. God wants to give us a new heart, but he won't do it without our permission. And the way we give God permission to give us a new heart is repentance and faith. And faith is not just like this mental agreement, not like just going mentally, okay, I believe God is real. I believe Jesus really died and maybe he rose from the dead. I mean, you can believe a lot of things, But that's not what we're talking about, right? Because even the demons believe, right? That's what it says in James. Faith is different. Faith is saying, not only do I think you're real, but I'm willing to give you control of my life. And that's what repentance is repentance is saying, okay, I can hold this brush, I can put on my canvas what I want, but I believe something specific about you, God, that makes me say, you should be the one. You should be the one to be painting the canvas of my life. i lay it down. I'm, I'm giving it up. I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to pick that up again. Does that sound like something that's a one and done kind of thing? Like, oh, I did that when I was 12. I'm good now. Or does that sound like something I probably have to do every day? Maybe multiple times a day is go, you know what? There's always this temptation. It's always handy. There's always this desire to reach out, pick up that brush, and, and take back control of my life. Even if I make mistakes, I'd still rather be in control than not. That's where faith comes in. Do I really believe? And what is it that I believe about God? Do I just believe that he's this big, you know, universal, abstract being? Or do I believe some specific things about God? So I think we have to ask this question. Who is the God that we are invited to put our faith in? It's probably bad grammar there, but you get the point. Who is this God that we are invited to put our faith in? I just wanna mention three aspects of God's character and nature that I think help us develop greater faith and then which helps us in turn to repent on a regular basis. I believe that God is good, that he is powerful, and that he is merciful. Uh, These three attributes are a part of a prayer I've been praying regularly for about five years and it really helps set the tone in my mind um, for repentance. And here's, here's how I think that works. let let's talk about what it means that God is good. It means I believe God is kind, that he wants what's best for all humanity. And we often individualize that statement and we say, God wants what's best for me. And if God wants what's best for me and that's really where I stop, then sometimes I can justify doing things or asking for things that are really not good for the people around me but God wants what's best for me. Well, God's kindness doesn't stop with you. God wants what's best for all humanity, which means sometimes God will lead you in directions or put things in your life that are not really what you feel like is best for you, but maybe it's what's best for all. Because he is good. He is powerful, which means God can do things that we can't do. I don't know how many of us have experienced these moments when we go, I'm trying to change and I just can't change. I want to be different. I want to stop being angry. I want to stop being bitter. I want to start being kind. And I just can't seem to change. God can change your heart, and He's the only one. He is powerful. He is able to do what we cannot do. And He is merciful. And in His mercy, our sin does not stop Him from caring about us and acting on our behalf. That's His mercy at work. He looks at us and goes, Yeah. You're a mess. Yeah, you've, you've made a lot of mistakes and I love you and I'm gonna act on your behalf. God is good and powerful and merciful. And I believe whenever we encounter the goodness or the power or the mercy of God, we're encountering his presence. That's what the presence of God looks like in our world today. When we encounter his goodness, his power, and his mercy, it's his presence. Every encounter with the presence of God increases my faith every encounter with God's goodness or power or mercy increases my faith that he deserves to be the one to hold the brush. He deserves to be the one to control my life, to tell me what goes on that canvas and what doesn't. He deserves to be the one to create a picture of my life that's different than what I would paint. What kind of picture does God paint? I don't know exactly. I'm not trying to say that God painted what's underneath this, but I just want to show you what Could be. I didn't paint this. Let's be really clear. If you want to know, I'll tell you later. But I couldn't even imagine this. Like, if you tried to describe this to me and said, go paint it, I'd be like, I don't even, I don't know where to start. I don't know what brush to use. I don't know what colors to pick up. I could never have dreamed this up. But I think it's beautiful. It's sort of hard to stop looking at. I I couldn't even explain why. But someone with a lot of skill and a lot of understanding of what paint does to canvas and how colors work together, somebody with a lot of skill put this together. And what I want for me and for you is a life where I step back from the canvas of my life and I go, I never would have thought of that. (laughs) Not in a million years, God, would I have put those two colors together. Not in a million years would I have chosen this path. But man, It's actually beautiful. Just compare the two. That's my best effort. Pretty basic clip art looking black and white. That's all I got. But my heavenly father can create something beautiful. And the way I step into that is I just let go of control and say, I'm not good at this anyway. Would you please take over? and be the one who's in charge of my life. That's repentance. And then every time I encounter his goodness, every time I step back and I see something beautiful, God's goodness or his power or his mercy, my faith grows. And I start to, I start to have a little more confidence that this repentance is actually a good idea. Man, because there are so many forces in our world and we're gonna wake up every day to an enemy who wants nothing more than us to take control. Because he knows if, if we do it, we'll screw some, some things up. And if my confidence in God continues to grow, I'm able to repent, I'm able to lay that thing down and let him do the work. Give me a new heart, God, because on my own, I'll just rebel. I'll just mess things up. Would you give me a new heart? I think that's the greatest miracle that we can experience in our faith. And here's, here's why I think this matters so much beyond just what it does for you personally. I think when... People live a pattern of repentance and faith, it presents a credible witness to people who need to see Jesus, which is everyone, right? Everyone needs to see Jesus for who he really is. But I think we as Christians oftentimes don't present a credible witness. Because in controlling our own lives, we present ourselves to other people as people who really, really have no, no clue what we're doing. We believe in God, but it actually doesn't affect our lives. And we just fail to live out the goodness and power and mercy of God. But if when we get it right, when we are in this cycle of repentance and faith and repentance and faith and repentance and faith, then we live a life that's actually a credible witness. People can look at our lives and go, I don't, there's some mystery there. I don't really understand everything, but it's kind of beautiful. I kind of wish my life looked a little bit like that. And when we get to present our lives as a credible witness, then more and more people get to experience the saving grace of Jesus. And isn't that what we want? And when we spend some time this morning praying that Jesus would return, but I know for many of you at the same time, there's some hesitation in that prayer because you love someone who doesn't know Jesus. And you're like, yes, come soon, but give me a minute. So what if we could be a part of more and more people coming to Christ? so that when Jesus returns, we get as many people as absolutely possible into the new creation. That's why we're partnering with Central India Christian Mission and what we're calling the Planting Presence uh, Generosity Venture this Advent season. What we're inviting you to do is to embrace this truth that the gifts you buy for people are not really the best way to show your love. The best way to show your love is your actual physical presence. And we believe that the best gift we can give to some people living in a very dark place in our world is to uh, give them the presence of God, to to let somebody show them that God is with them and that he loves them. And so we're spending a little less on gifts. You don't have to stop buying gifts. Kids, don't worry. You're gonna get gifts. It'll be great. But maybe a little less so that we can take the extra and invest it um, in something that brings the presence, the light of the presence of God uh, to a dark place. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about that after Mark comes up. Mark Miller is here from Central India Christian Mission, not from India itself, but from the mission. Uh, Mark is the Associate Director of Development, and he has been so kind to come and join us today. So, Mark, would you come on up and share? Let's give Mark a hand as he, as he comes up.
1: Thanks, Adam. So, I, you know, I, I think it was providential at least for me to be here this morning and, and thinking about this and listening to that and, uh, you know, looking back over my life uh, and how many times I tried to uh, paint the portrait of where my life was going to go and then looking back and seeing how little influence I had over the choices. You know, I, and I was in my mid-20s and God began to teach me obedience and with that taught me about tithing. And in my 30s, he began to teach me about sacrifice, and you know just that idea of of, of giving away uh, to others. Then in my 40s, uh, the idea of being generous, and he put me in a position where since uh, then, last 20 years, I've traveled to 35 countries, uh, India being one of them, and I became friends with Ajay and Indu Law, the founders of Central India Christian Mission, uh, a little over 25 years ago. Uh, never would I have imagined that I'd be at this season of life, actually. Uh, serving uh, them and the work that they do. And uh, I don't know how much you know about India. I'm sure most of you know about where it is in the, in the world. And in, uh, it's, it's in a place called South Asia. And about 2 billion people live throughout South Asia. Um, and, and reference that is kind of helpful. India and China are two of the largest nations in the world. And they're both, as countries, about uh, 1.4 to 1.5 billion people there. Now, just to give you something to put your heads around, the United States of America is the third largest nation of the world. And while they have over 1.4 billion uh, in those two countries, we have about 340 million. Okay, so think about it. 340 million in the United States. We know what that map looks like. We all had to do states and capitals at some point in time in our education. India is about one-third of the size of the United States. One-third. And there's 1.4 billion people in that country. 70% of the population lives at a poverty level of less than $2 a day. Now we all know what it was like for us to shut down during COVID, but can you imagine you made enough money every day to feed your family that day? And you went to work the next day thinking you were gonna make enough money to feed your family and there was no work. Uh, And that's, that's a life for them. That's what it looks like for there. Less than 2% of the population in India has ever heard about Jesus. That's the country as a whole. Now we're gonna partner in a, in a state of India called Gujarat. Gujarat is, is west of where our, our main uh, campuses are. Uh, we're in the center of the country and the west is, is a state called Gujarat. Uh, in Gujarat, uh, less than one half of 1% have ever heard of Jesus. And in the 90s and the early 2000s, there was significant persecution of Christians uh, in the Gujarat area that just basically snuffed out all of the efforts there. We weren't even able to work in that, that state. And just this year, uh, God opened up an opportunity uh, for us to begin working amongst the Gujarati uh, in, in that state. About 68 million people uh, would be called Gujarati. And most of them, 98% actually live in that state. Uh, around the world in, 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 in that area. And so working with them uh, by putting church planters there, and I think Adam told me you've already raised enough for one church planter. Now, that, that seems, 68 million people, one church planter, we're gonna try to have three by the time we're all done. Doesn't seem like a lot, but our history has been that our church planters will plant four churches and see 800 converts in just their first year. And so they don't think about, you know, planting a church and then just growing that church, they think about reproducing both themselves and the missions. And so what you're doing isn't just addition, it's exponential growth. Uh, And and just so so acknowledging the impact that you can have. So with less than 2% of the population believing in Christ, our expectation is in the next three to five years, that we will actually change the spiritual landscape of India and South Asia by one percentage point. Now, that doesn't seem like a lot until you think we're talking about just under two billion people. And we're gonna change that by one. You know, so at sometime at lunch today, do the math and recognize what God can do through your efforts here today. Now, I'm also gonna ask you to be mindful. So my friends, Dr. Ajay and Indu Law, we talked this morning about you know, the things we can do with our family during this holiday season and being together as a church family. My friends are in hiding right now. Uh, and I don't know this morning whether they're able to be with their physical family or even with a church family this morning. The religious political uh, persecution uh, in India right now is at an all time high. And opposition forces have been doing anything in their power uh, against both the laws and the mission of CICM. Uh, just a couple, in fact, first time Adam, Adam and I talked, They had just uh, gone into hiding for the first time as a result of some accusations made. They received protection from the court. They came home. There were additional charges leveraged against them. They left. Just earlier this week, they received protection from the court. They came back home. And just a few nights ago, uh, some of the opposition people put the carcasses of dead cows on their property. Now, if you're not aware, cows are sacred in India. Killing a cow is imprisonment for life or death. Okay, And so opposition put cows in their property. They called the, the, uh, the police. They called the press and they asked, what are we going to do about people like this? And so my friends went back into hiding and they left in three separate cars. Uh, Dr. Law, his daughter and son-in-law and grandkids and his other daughter, son-in-law and grandkids. And they went three separate ways. I don't know today where they are but I know we've got hundreds of faithful leaders and pastors throughout the country that continue the work. And so we're thankful to partner with you in Gujarat, but we're also appreciative of your prayers this morning uh, for my friends uh, because they're not celebrating Christmas like we are and today. So thank you for letting us be here.
0: Thanks so much for being here, Mark. And I just want to wrap this up with a couple points. Um, and I think one of the things that you uh, would share with people, he's got a table out here. I'd love for you to stop by, is that all this work is being done by Indian people. These are not Americans going over and doing the work. It wasn't founded by Americans. These are Indian people. And they're not, um, they're not trying to change people's culture. They're trying to change their, their hearts and lives. That, that there, there's some... We're not calling people to totally leave their, their identities, but to put their identity in Christ and still be the people of India as, as makes sense as Christians. And so um, we're just grateful for that work that it's being done by people who understand the culture well and understand the people well, and we're glad to partner with them. So, what we're doing is uh, you can give on the app. If you uh, find the drop down on the giving app, it'll say planting presents. You can give that way. Or if you give by check, uh, you can just write planting presents on your check and drop that in the box or in the mail. Um, and And we're representing kind of our progress with a Christmas tree out there that um, has a red line around it that shows the the progress. So we've raised about $3,400 so far, which is about enough to send out one church planter. Uh, And so uh, we're also putting little gift boxes, uh, little presents on the tree, because I will wear this pun out uh, for the next three weeks. Just get used to it. We're putting presents on the tree. And uh, each present, each gift box represents 20 people that we believe uh, based on the projections will come to Christ as a result of the work of the church planter that we send out. So your job is to go out and make sure that all the little gift boxes that were in that basket get put on the tree today uh, so that we're up to, up to speed on that. So please do that before you leave. Um, as we close, would you stand with me? Uh, we're gonna pray for um, this project, but really more importantly for what God is doing uh, in India through Central Indian Christian Mission, and we're going to pray for Ajay Lal and his family as uh, they're just facing this persecution and um we're gonna pray for their protection and safety. So let's do that. God, thanks so much for Mark being here today to represent this mission to us, uh, to give us a window into what you're doing in other parts of the world, to remind us that you are alive and active and powerful in every dark corner of this planet and um, that we, we get to partner with you in what you're doing to build your kingdom. So thank you for Central India Christian Mission. Thank you for the work of Dr. Law and his family. And we pray that you would encourage them in their spirits, uh, that you would protect them physically from harm, and uh, that you would allow them to continue to be a light um, in the darkness, and that you would use this, Father, as a a testimony someday that draws people to Jesus. Would you do all of that um, for the glory of your name? In Christ's name we pray, amen. It's good to see you all. God bless you. Go and be salt and light in a world that desperately needs the hope of Christ.